1: Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Let's jump right in, shall we? Our program is brought to you by hslammo.com, also by pure-light.com and monticellocollege.org. A link to each one of these wonderful sponsors can be found in the show notes at the com. So, welcome to the show, whether you're a long-time listener or first-time listener. I, I, I have to offer some thanks here. I have a, I have a friend who um, today just commented that, that she is a listener to this program. And I actually I felt I was I was so relieved to hear her say that. And I I don't want to sound like I'm being needy or anything, but I want you to understand that doing what I do, like a lot of other people, we put this out there. We we do broadcasts, We do podcasts, Maybe we write op eds. We send out there, you know, content speaking truth the best that we know how, but we never really know. If it's reaching anybody or if it's just, you know, rocketing out into space, you know, maybe someday it'll it'll impress some alien civilization. You just don't know. And I don't take it for granted. Never once have I allowed myself the luxury to think, oh, yes, of course, people are listening. Of course, you know, I have an audience. Um, it's not important to me as far as, you know, getting accolades. I, I will admit it feels very good to know that there are people listening. So, Darcy, thank you very much for saying something today. And it was just a reminder to me that. I put this out there knowing that I am utterly inept when it comes to social media. I suck at running a business. I'm just I I'm an I'm a noob at this. I, you know, I'm learning the ropes as I go. And so in that struggle, it's tempting sometimes to sit there and wonder, does (laughs) does this ever reach anyone? And when you get a little bit of feedback, especially when it's positive feedback, it is a wonderful thing. And, and I'm grateful that you are a part of this audience today. There are so many voices out there that are competing for your time, competing for your attention. I want you to know I do my level best to pick topics that will have some relevance, that will, will help you better understand the world around you, but that don't add to your load of anger or fear, or or mistrust, or whatever. Okay, maybe the mistrust thing. I am going to be talking about the media, mass media today, and I have some pretty deep distrust there. But, ideally, it's about better understanding the world around us, thinking clearly and independently about the things that are going on, and then acting within whatever sphere of influence you and I have, and we have influence. You know, don't sell yourself short. You, you do. To try to be, you know, a source of light, and, and hopefully... Uh, direction for those who are looking for it. So on tap today, with that in mind, that's this is the reason why I got out of bed this morning. It's the reason why I crack on the microphone every so often. We're going to talk about a major case involving a public school student's free speech on her personal time. This is a case that's coming before the Supreme Court, and, uh, and it has some fairly strong implications on free speech. Got a great commentary here from Thomas L. Knapp. He says, you know, in this case, the Supreme Court of the United States should clarify that students don't shed their freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. So we'll get to that in just a moment. We also will talk a little bit about another landmark case involving the Second Amendment that is going to be heard by the Supreme Court. John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education has an excellent take on that. And then I'm going to spend a little time talking about my distrust of the media, or at least most mass media, And a very curious trend that uh, Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org has identified, and that is some outlets are starting to moderate their activism, meaning they're they're walking back that insistence that everything that's not in agreement with us is, is wrong. But she says, is this leading us to deeper propaganda? And I think she has a very valid concern in how she's looking at this. And last but not least... Because this is one of the common themes of, of what I believe and what I hope to persuade others to consider. No matter how carefully you use your time, no matter how carefully you allot your attention. Politics is always looking for a way to insinuate itself into your life. And I've got a great essay here from Robert Weisberg that reminds us politics is not the only game in town. That doesn't mean you give up the fight. It just means you can use your time and energy where it has impact And the political victory isn't the only victory that needs to be addressed. So with that in mind, let's talk about free speech rather than school control. This is from Thomas L. Knapp. I got this in my inbox last night from everything-voluntary.com. I would strongly recommend subscribe to their emails because they always have very thought-provoking content. Thomas Knapp writes in the in 1969 the U.S. Supreme Court held in Tinker v. Des Moines Independent Community School District that students don't shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. Schools can only prohibit, censor, or punish student speech which would materially and substantially interfere with the requirements of appropriate discipline in the operation of the school. But this raises the question, what about speech that occurs outside the schoolhouse gate? and outside of school hours. Well, the court is about to take on that issue in Mahanoy Area School District, VBL. Now, in uh, 2017, 14-year-old high school freshman, Brandy Levy, found herself suspended from her school's cheerleading squad for over a year, for a year, rather, over an intemperate Snapchat post published from off campus and over the weekend. F-school, F-softball, F-cheer, F-everything. Levy wrote, emphasizing her upset at not making the varsity cheer squad with a finger of herself and a friend raising their middle fingers. Levy sued over the suspension and won. Four years later, she studies accounting in college as she awaits a U.S. Supreme Court ruling on her former school's appeal. Now, the school district claims the power to regulate and punish substantially disruptive student speech, even when that student is speaking off campus and outside of school hours. Brandy Levy says the school district's power over student speech ends at the campus property line and the end of the school day. Even leaving aside the question of whether Levy's rant was substantially disruptive. And Thomas L. Knapp says, as a student, I heard much worse on campus and during school hours without any accompanying disruptions. He says it's important to draw a bright line here. She's right. They're wrong. And it isn't even a close call. Most state laws mandate attendance at government-operated schools for most minors, with some exceptions for private or homeschooling. The government gets substantial control of our kids for several hours a day, five days a week, not counting homework and extracurricular activities. Now that substantial control must end at the schoolhouse door and at the final bell. Apart from true threats of violence, which are actionable whether the perpetrator is a student or not, what our kids say, how they say it, and who they say it to when they're not at school is simply none of the school's business. He says in the age of social media, it's more important than ever for the Supreme Court to protect students' free speech rights off campus as well as on. Now, I know the Supreme Court can be kind of unpredictable on, on matters like this. And, you know, I, I have no clear feel of, well, you know, with the 6-3 majority that's conservative, because, you know, most of these were, were appointed by uh, President Trump. I don't know that you can count on that. I mean, I look at the Supreme Court ducking anything related to the 2020 election. They didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And I don't, it was, I don't believe it was because, well, it failed the basic tests of jurisprudence. I think they're scared. And I think they're scared because there is a very strong activist component. Yes, even with the Republican-nominated justices who sit on that court more often than not, it appears to me, and this is, you know, my my incomplete but sincere looking into how has the court traditionally ruled throughout its history? It seems more often than not, the court finds ways to accommodate the expansion of government power. Now, you know, you can read into that what you want. Is it is it done out of a malicious, you know, conspiratorial? This is how we're going to take over things sort of way. Probably not. I think it probably falls more along the lines of the court is simply not they're trying not to undermine the credibility of either previous court decisions or those who currently hold the levers of power once in a while. They have to slap somebody back into place. But uh, but it seems very, very rare. The, The direction that government has gone throughout most of the nation's history, and I would say even starting with Marbury v. Madison, you know, back in 1802 is going to be greater government power and a consolidation of power, particularly at the federal level. Now, if that sounds too conspiratorial, I don't know what to tell you. But it will be curious to watch this case. Again, the, the case will be Mahanoy Area School District, VBL, as in Brandy Le- Levy. Going to be curious to see whether they uh, side with the idea that says, you know what, the, the control of school officials should extend beyond the official school day and the official school yard. I mean, we've already seen some hints of this in the way that various districts have, you know, enforced policies on students that were schooling from home because of COVID. I mean, a kid's Nerf gun was spotted in the background of his Zoom call. Police, like legit police, dispatched to the home. That seems a bit of overkill, but such are the times we live in. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde
1: Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, if this is your first time on the uh, merry-go-round, hopefully you're picking up on why we call this reveling in wrong think. It's okay to challenge some of the uh, prevailing narratives. In fact, it's almost an essential thing. You want to be a free person, and I assume you do. That's why you gravitate uh, towards uh, messages like this one. You have got to find the courage to stand on your own feet and not wait for somebody to give you permission to be free. If this last year has taught us anything, it's that uh, some people... Some people think that it would be a great idea to give government even more power and more control over their lives. And others have have finally had their eyes open up to realize, wow, this creates a horrible mess when government steps in to solve things that it really shouldn't be trying to solve in the first place. So anyway, I thank you for being a part of our audience today. If you find value in this message, please feel free to share it far and wide with uh, those who likewise could, could benefit from it. So, I mentioned there was another Supreme Court case that I wanted to talk about. Uh, John Miltimore has a great write up on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. That's fee.org. Again, subscribe to their emails. I get emails, I think, seven days a week. They send out various emails of the different articles and, and uh, publications that, that they put out. It's a remarkable message. It's very nonpartisan, and and the fact-finding and the documentation I have found to be very solid. This is not to say they're infallible. They could never get anything wrong. But when it comes to dotting their I's and crossing their T's, uh, the the folks who contribute to the Foundation for Economic Education's website and and their, their published articles really are very careful. They're meticulous about making sure that they're not putting false or incomplete information out there, something that our mass media could probably learn from. So the case is uh, another, another landmark Second Amendment case involving New York gun owners Brandon Koch, Koch rather, and Robert Nash who were denied a license to carry because they did not demonstrate a special need for self-defense. You can see why this might have some far-reaching implications. John Miltmore says the Supreme Court on Monday announced it will hear a case that could determine whether Americans have the right to carry a firearm outside the home. Now, I'm going to offer a very small annotation of my own, and I, I, I love John's writing. I think he is a very, very trustworthy journalist. There's the, here's the clarification I want to make. The Supreme Court will be hearing a case that could determine, or rather could examine, whether we have the right to carry a firearm outside the home. But that's a pre-existing right. In other words, th- they can determine whether they recognize it. They cannot determine whether or not such a right exists. I, I hope that makes sense. It's, I know it's splitting hairs, but we, the people, delegate a portion of authority to call the government into existence. It's the creature, not the creator. And the creature cannot exceed the creator. So for, for the, the creature to tell us, well, here's what I think you are allowed to do. Nope. That is, uh, that is incompatible with proper government. OK, having said that, let me stop straining at that gnat. NBC News reports the court agreed to hear a challenge to a New York state law that allows residents to carry a concealed handgun only if they can demonstrate a special need beyond a general desire for, sp- for self-protection. Now, John Miltimore says it will mark the first time in more than a decade that the high court will take up a major case central to gun rights. And again, I'm only I know this is common usage. I've done it myself. We are talking about natural rights of which the right to self-defense, the right to preserve your uh, autonomy and self-determination. Gun rights are just a part of that. But it's part of a larger series of natural rights that pre-exist government and that government exists to secure and guarantee. And I only emphasize this because this is something that that it's very easy to, it's very easy to be a degree or two off into thinking, well, you know, but this is something the government has to determine in order for it to be legitimate. Nope. That right is yours. But you have to know enough that you would claim it, use it, and defend it. So the question is asked, will it be a flat-out prohibition? The case involves gun owners Brandon Koch and uh, Robert Nash, who applied for a license to carry a handgun. Unlike most U.S. states, New York prohibits carrying a loaded handgun outside the home without a carry license. Now, according to an amicus brief filed with the court in December, Nash, citing a rash of robberies in his neighborhood, requested a a license to carry for self-defense after completing an advanced firearm safety training course. He was denied, with a police officer stating that Nash had not shown proper cause Coke was denied on similar grounds. As the Gifford Law Center notes, licenses are only granted to individuals who show what they call proper cause, which means applicants must demonstrate a special need for self-defense. Now, this essentially gives law enforcement sole and complete discretion in who receives a permit, which the plaintiffs argue is a clear violation of the Second Amendment. The lawyers wrote, A law that flatly prohibits ordinary law-abiding citizens from carrying a handgun for self-defense outside the home, cannot be reconciled with the court's affirmation of the individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation. The lawyers went on to say the Second Amendment does not exist to protect only the rights of the happy few who distinguish themselves from the body of the people through some proper cause. To the contrary, the Second Amendment exists to protect the rights of all the people. Now, the state of New York disagrees, arguing its permit process is not incompatible with Supreme Court precedent. I know they didn't say Constitution. They just they're looking to the court as, as, you know, precedent. Okay, so whatever the court says, well, that must embody what the Constitution is. It's a common, commonly held belief. I happen to believe it's in error. New York's lawyers wrote this flexible standard, which numerous New York residents have successfully satisfied, generally requires showing that an applicant that the applicant has a non-speculative need for self-defense. Absent such a need, applicants may receive a premises license that allows them to keep a firearm in their home or place of business, or a restricted license that allows them to carry public for any other purposes for which they have shown a non-speculative need, such as hunting, target shooting, or employment. Now, John Miltimore says the Supreme Court's decision to hear the case marks the second biggest Second Amendment showdown since the landmark 2008 case, District of Columbia v. Heller in which the court ruled the Constitution protects an individual's right to keep and bear arms. In that pivotal 5-4 decision, the High Court upheld an appellate ruling that embraced the individual right theory of the Second Amendment. The Constitution states, A well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, some had interpreted the inclusion of the words a well-regulated militia to mean the Second Amendment was a collective right. But the High Court rejected this claim. The Second Amendment protects an individual right to possess a firearm unconnected with service in a militia. Now, the Heller ruling was not without controversy. In some ways, the decision was even complicated for libertarians and constitutionalists. By the way, just as an aside, my friend Suzanne Sherman has written an excellent excellent piece on how heller actually waters down and distorts the second amendment back to john miltimore's article though many may have been pleased with the end result he writes the right for individuals to bear arms there was a matter of five members of an elite court overturning a local prohibition some jurists compared the ruling to a right-wing version of roe v wade The Roe and Heller courts are guilty of the same sins," wrote wrote Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson III. In both, the court claimed to find in the Constitution the authority to overrule the wishes of the people's representatives. Now, still, there is no doubt in that the Supreme Court reached the proper conclusion in asserting that the Second Amendment is an individual right, not a collective right. The reason this is obvious is that, as economic historian Robert Higgs has pointed out, the framers of the Constitution created a government rooted in individual rights. Higgs observed clearly government in the United States was founded on an explicit recognition of rights, natural, unalienable rights of each individual, and governments were understood to be legitimate only insofar as they acted to protect those rights. Individuals and their rights were regarded as morally prior to government and its mandates. Governments were to serve the people, not the people, the government. Okay, this is as good a place as any to take our break. We're going to come back with more from this article from uh, John Miltimore. You can find it for yourself in today's show notes at com.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. I am sharing with you an article from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. Supreme Court agrees to hear Second Amendment landmark case. And this is what you need to know. Now, he spelled out some of the particulars of the case, Uh, a couple of individuals who were were seeking licenses to carry firearms with them for personal protection. The state of New York said, nope, you got to show you have, you know, special cause. You have to prove that you actually have a reason to carry this. And so we're now being reminded that government, as the founders saw it, was justifiable insofar as it protected natural individual rights. It was the raison d'etre of government, and the government had no legitimate purpose beyond this scope. When the governments proved abusive of their powers, when they destroyed rather than protected natural rights of people, the people had a right to defend their rights and to overturn the government that threatened them. This is according to Robert Higgs, historian. Now, John Miltimore says, one need not embrace this philosophy of government, of course, but there's no question that the Constitution was grounded in individual rights, Higgs observes, and he was hardly alone in his assessment. As the New York Times noted in the wake of Heller, even prominent liberal law professors, including Akil Reed Amar of Yale, Lawrence H. Tribe of Harvard, and Sanford Levinson of University of Texas, grudgingly conceded that the amendment, in fact, protects an individual right. Levinson captured the tone of the scholars by stating the Second Amendment was a national embarrassment, though an individual right nonetheless. OK, well, at least he was able to register his disapproval. So, you know, that that's good. Now, Miltimore says the Supreme Court will soon determine how far that individual right extends. I don't know about you, that kind of sets off some danger signals for me. It's like, really? A- and they're the ones who are supposed to trust on this? I don't know. I think you could make the case that maybe the states should be the ones deciding this. And by the way, I understand that means some states like California or New York, for example, will continue to be very, very difficult in terms of the exercise of the right to keep and bear arms. Others like, uh, you know. Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, and I don't know how many other states have adopted constitutional carry, which is kind of a misnomer. It just simply means permitless carry. You can carry a firearm concealed or openly as long as you're a law-abiding adult. As long as you're not committing a crime, it's not the government's business what you have in your pocket. Back to the article. John Miltimore says, people no doubt have different feelings on this point, but we would do well to remember the wise words of Frederick Douglass who noted the Second Amendment historically has been crucial to the preservation of liberty. Douglas wrote in his autobiography, The Life and Times of, Life and Times of Frederick Douglass*, quote, the liberties of the American people were dependent upon the ballot box, the jury box and the cartridge box that without these, no class of people could live and flourish in this country. And John Miltimore says Douglas was right. Let's hope the high court continues to see the Second Amendment as a bulwark of freedom as well. Now, I I don't want to tell you this is where you have to come down on this, but I think it's helpful to remember that you don't have to ask permission to exercise a right, a natural right. And if you're not real clear on what your natural rights are, uh, can I suggest that maybe some of your leisure time would be well spent in researching that, reading books that you may think are above your head at the moment. By the way, John Locke's second treatise on civil government A great place to start and definitely as you read it, if if you have ever read the Constitution or if you've ever read the Bill of Rights or heard the arguments in the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers, you will find that uh, the founding generation drew a lot upon Locke's view of what legitimate government could rightly do and what it could not. My take is simply this. Anything peaceful should be on the table. Nobody has a right to know what gun you own or how much ammunition or whether you bought two or three of these unless you are engaged in some kind of crime. Like provably, um, there's a reasonable, articulable suspicion or, for that matter, probable cause that says, yep, you're involved in a crime. Merely possessing an inanimate object, that's not enough. And I'm not going to get into the whole historical aspect of what happens when governments legally go about disarming their people. Suffice it to say, a lot of governments have done this throughout world history. Not every government has gone on to commit genocide. But at the same time, I would ask you to consider that no genocide has happened, particularly within modern history, without the targeted population first being disarmed. And most often it was done by law. So it's probably worth getting your mind around this issue. But it means you're going to have to do your own homework, because I promise you uh, the the news media, the press in America is not going to give you the kind of information that will allow you to draw an informed conclusion. They have a conclusion they'd like you to come to. But it sounds something like mass shootings, guns, bad blood in the streets, everybody for the sake of the children, common sense, gun control. (laughs) Sorry, starting to hyperventilate. But that's the point. It's about stampeding people into a particular direction with. Incomplete or for that matter, incorrect information. Just enough facts shaded to make it look like this is the only possible conclusion you can come to. The best way I know to dispel this kind of misinformation and deception is, first of all, to get out there and take seriously that right to keep and bear arms. Now, I'm not just talking about, go buy a gun and lots of ammo and yeah, you'll be right there where you need to be. I mean, it's a start, but... What you really need is you need training. And when I, when I say training, I don't just mean, you know, someone teaching you the, the safety, you know, steps and, and the state safety protocols to follow and teaching you how to pull the trigger and hit the target you're shooting at. That's important. But it only scratches the surface of what you are taught in a very good quality defensive firearms training course. And I'm talking one that takes two to four days or more to complete. One that costs you likely thousands of dollars. Because those courses are as much about training your mind and and helping you understand the responsibilities that go along with that right to keep and bear arms as they are with making you proficient in the use of a firearm in personal defense. And I'm speaking from a position of mild authority when I tell you I've I've attended at least a dozen or more of these classes over the last 20 years. And it's you don't know what you don't know until you have had some good quality training. And ironically, the more training you receive, the less likely it is that you will ever find yourself in a life-or-death situation where you have to pull a gun and, and shoot your way out of trouble. Because they also teach you how to recognize the signs that trouble may be scouting for you and how to avoid it before you're backed into a corner and you have no other options. One thing's for sure. People who have had this kind of training are not dangerous and they're not Rambo wannabes. They are the backbone of a responsible citizenry who's capable of protecting themselves and protecting the people around them if that need should arise. And you know what? Occasionally it does. Sometimes people, for various reasons, twist off, for lack of a better word, and, and they go on a rampage. And sometimes they do it with knives. Sometimes they do it with cars. Sometimes they use a firearm. It's rare, but when it happens, you have a problem if you happen to be in the vicinity. And the problem is, someone is posing a deadly threat to you or the people you love. You need to be able to act. But we've been trained to believe, but the authority to do something about it is on the other end of the phone, so I'll dial 911 and wait for the police to come and handle it. Now, if you have that option, if you can get to a safe place, that's great. The cops will come, they will bring enough people to to handle the situation, but that bit of time between when you need their help and when they're actually going to get there could be the rest of your life depending on your situation and there's nothing shameful or there's no, nothing walter ish about being put prepared and and equipped to defend yourself but you don't know that until you've actually had a chance to to have this kind of training And with this kind of training, you start to recognize firearms absolutely have a place in civilized society. And you'll see, it's not young, angry rednecks that are making up all the classes. You'll see grandmas, you'll see grandpas, you'll see people of every shape, size, color, and age who take seriously the preservation of what is most precious to them. And you may not like it, but the truth is, the firearm is the great equalizer when there is disparity of force. It's what, makes, it's what makes, you know, an 80 plus year old grandma able to defend herself against a young, much more able, much stronger assailant. All right. I feel like this, this can get depressing real quick. All, all I'm trying to say is don't rely on the Supreme Court to tell you whether or not you have that right. Exercise that right. Get the skills that you need. Have the tools in your freedom toolbox to be able to, to you know, responsibly Exercise that right to keep and bear arms and to defend yourself, and then teach it to the people around you. I'm very fortunate. I grew up in in a time and place where the shooting sports were just a part of what we did as kids. And I look back on that now and I realize we were given an immense amount of responsibility. And for the most part, we did not abuse it. But it was an essential part of becoming a more responsible citizen. And I think it's the kind of thing that uh, may be coming back into fashion, given some of the uh, unrest and things we've seen happening, you know, in the last few years. All right. I got a couple great articles I'm going to share with you in the final segment of today's show. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's dive right in. I want to talk about this article I saw on intellectualtakeout.org earlier today. This is from Annie Holmquist. The media is returning to common sense or deeper propaganda. She's got a pretty interesting take here, and I think it's one well worth considering. And he says, I noticed a strange occurrence lately, which started when several articles began to appear asking if we should still wear masks outside. And her re- first reaction to this was, what do you mean still? We don't need masks outside. But apparently officials in states other than her own think you do. Slate, it appears, kicked off this questioning of masks in the great outdoors. Now other media outlets are picking up the trend and suggesting that it's permissible to go maskless when outside, in some instances, with the utmost caution, of course. But she says, then I saw a clip from CNN in which a black guest analyzed the police shooting of 16-year-old Micaiah Bryant. Interestingly, the guest suggested that the officer did his job, and we need to start looking at each incident as its own incident. Now, Annie Holmquist says my surprise at this declaration tripled when the CNN anchor responded with a relieved sigh, saying, I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you put it that way, because we have to be able to say that, yes, things are a tragedy. Something can be tragic and not necessarily call into question the entire way that an officer responded. Now, she says, exploring the issue further, I found that CNN's Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo took a more commonsensical approach to the Micaiah Bryant shooting than I would have expected, noting that the incident was tragic, but that under the circumstances, we needed to view things from the police officer's point of view and realize that lives were in danger. Both Cuomo and Lemon sympathized with the cop, acknowledging that he was in a difficult situation and he likely felt terrible about having killed Bryant. Now, Annie Holmquist says, my first reaction to these incidents was relief and a desire to cry hallelujah. It seems we're finally seeing a light at the end of the tunnel and may be returning to common sense. Now, she says this could very well be the case. Sometimes things get pushed so far into craziness that the pendulum can't move further in one direction and must swing back. But she asks, could there be something else at work here? What if the radical social justice warriors, woke media and leftist politicians sense they have the upper hand and know that the continual race baiting, cop bashing, fear mongering line of attack is beginning to lose its power? Perhaps they realize that the American public can only take so much of a one sided story and will start to wake up. If this is indeed their mindset they may believe they need to create a false impression of being even-handed or even moderate in order to maintain credibility. In effect, by distancing themselves from some of the more extreme positions of the left, double masks everywhere all the time, all police forces unjustified, and ignoring or suppressing viewpoints from the right, our societal controllers try to give the false impression that they are the only reasonable alternative. Such an idea was advanced by the late political philosopher Richard Weaver in his writings on propaganda. He suggested there are some forms of propaganda that are extremely subtle and may be missed by the average person. Listen to this quote. He said there are certain methods of distortion and emotional appeal which are likely to go unrecognized by any except the most reflective minds of these. The most effective is the simple device of suppressing alternatives. All rational choice is a process of sorting over two or more alternatives and taking the one which seems to promise best. And democratic government rests upon a premise that the common man is capable of doing this. Propagandists long ago discovered that no such process can occur if only one alternative is supplied. By this method, freedom of choice is stifled almost as completely as if coercion had been used. End quote. So Annie Holmquist says, in other words, it may be that those in power realize that people need to hear more than the same talking points all the time. Otherwise, they will naturally gravitate to anything but those talking points. She says the media may realize that their reputation for fairness has evaporated. So they try to peddle a few counterpoints to remain believable. So which is it? Common sense finally kicking in or more concerted efforts at propaganda? And he says, I don't know but it does seem that the thoughtful among us would be well advised to keep our eyes and ears open. Propaganda is a tricky thing, and only those who guard against it can avoid its pitfalls. Amen. I, I am with her 100% on this. This comes down to, again, the responsibilities on you and on me to become the kind of finely-tuned BS detector that can sort fact from fiction. And it does take some effort and some consistency... But it's certainly not impossible. And it's certainly better than waiting to be spoon fed. Okay, what do I believe next? Which unfortunately describes how a lot of people get their news. All right. Finally, no matter how carefully you use your time, politics is looking for a way to pry into your life and become a part of whatever it is you're doing. Here's a great article from Robert Weisberg. Politics is not the only game in town. He says for many conservatives, today's political news may may resemble the early days of World War II. Endless defeats and little to suggest future victories. But he says make no mistake, the defeats are real, but the situation is not as bleak as it may appear. The left triumphs in the political realm and this makes its victories public. By contrast, those on the right often respond privately. A focus rendering our accomplishments nearly invisible. This is asymmetrical warfare where combatants do not meet on the same battlefield. And it is this asymmetry that causes our despair. He says, consider a family living in Smallville, USA, a town whose values reflect America of the 1950s. One day, citizens wake up to discover their public schools have embraced an anti-racist woke curriculum. Construction will soon begin on Section 8 housing for poor people shipped in from nearby East St. Louis. And the police will no longer enforce quality of life laws dealing with homeless vagrants. In short, a triumph of progressivism and disaster for folks living in Smallville. How might conservatives respond? Fight politics with politics? Circulate petitions to recall elected officials? Organize via social media? All possible, of course. But the odds of success are small, and timelines for such projects span years of effort. By that time, the war may be lost miseducated children, lost home equity, and an unlivable downtown. But political defeats need not be reversed politically. Put broadly, politics today is the left's home court, and the right suffers inherent disadvantages when playing away games. Better to go to the non- to go the non-political route, besides there's money to be made by satisfying the needs of those who loathe the left's political agenda. There are many better and quicker options that may be used to fight back via private sector responses. The most effective is moving. Realtors are ready and happy to help, but the left is powerless to stop them. Realtors are generally not thought of as political actors, but they have helped millions of people escape dreadful, often progressive public policy. Forget about reversing city halls, misguided policies. Just go online and look for towns with good schools, safe downtowns and low taxes. Now, to be sure, this strategy is hardly cost free, but it outperforms conventional political tactics. Recall how the so-called white flight that began in the 1950s proved a solution to those seeking to escape ineffective crime ridden schools and other urban woes. Even better is coupling your new home with a job that permits working from home so you can work for a company in Detroit while living in Boise, Idaho. The private sector similarly provides escape from woke schools. Homeschooling is becoming increasingly popular and parents can certainly avoid indoctrination heavy public education. The Internet offers a cornucopia of sites providing traditional K through 12 education. The Enlightenum, the Enlightium, there we go, Enlightium Academy, Liberty University Online Academy being just a few examples. There are also several sites that compile links to online schools so that parents can make informed decisions about their children's education. The well-trained Mind Academy provides a great option for parents who prefer classical education. Yes, he says fleeing public schools requires effort, but the return on investment far outweighs the costs. Especially since trying to confront radicals who've captured the classroom is a much harder and longer fight with a much lower chance of success. Combating crime can also be accomplished via private initiatives. The National Sheriff's Association runs the National Neighborhood Watch Program and offers one-stop shopping for those now unable to rely on help from their local police. Internet shopping is another boon for those seeking to escape progressive political victories. No need to worry about homeless encampments and aggressive panhandlers. Again, it's capitalism to the rescue, and it's generally far quicker and cheaper than launching a political campaign. Silicon Valley might attempt to censor dangerous thought, including books such as When Harry Became Sally... But so far, these efforts have not been 100% effective. Yes, the mass media and universities are doing their best to quash unpopular views. But heretical ideas can still be expressed, albeit through outlets off the beaten path. Private solutions are not, however, enough. He says that this is a two-front war. Totalitarian government can eventually overcome non-political alternatives. Yet escaping today's leftist insanity should not counsel apathy. Schools beyond state control can be banned, as Harvard University's first salvo demonstrated last year, and private security could be made illegal. The left and their ideology must be defeated politically, but he says in the meantime, keep in mind that politics is not the only game in town. Again, this is Robert Weisberg, writing for IntellectualTakeout.org. I mean, be creative. How bad do you want to be free? I'd wager that freedom-minded folks can be very creative and innovative when it comes to exercising their rights. So let's do it and stop waiting for permission.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.